I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, July 17th, 2018. Coming up, peak wildfire season means peak asthma and other health ailments for many people in Colorado. Anthony Gerber, a pulmonologist and associate professor of medicine at National Jewish Health and University of Colorado Denver, will discuss the health risks of inhaling wildfire smoke over time. And we'll hear about how the mental and health physical health impacts on immigrant children who've been forcibly separated from their parents in government detention centers since April. Colleen Kraft, a pediatrician and president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, is our guest. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. El Nino is coming. That's the increasingly confident forecast from the U.S. Climate Prediction Center. In its latest monthly report, the center continued an El Nino watch, but it boosted the odds of the climatic phenomenon developing during the upcoming Northern Hemisphere winter. Last month, the center pegged El Nino's chances at 65%, but now it's up to 70%. That's important because El Nino has profound impacts on weather around the world, including right here in the western United States, where El Nino often results in an amplified winter storm track across the southern tier of the country. This trend this tends to bring wetter conditions to Southern California, portions of Nevada and Arizona, and southwestern Colorado, areas now afflicted already by severe drought. Keep in mind, though, that this is about probabilities, not certainties, so we could see a different pattern develop. If the models and forecasters are right, and El Nino actually does develop, we should also expect one other likely impact, one that's an unpleasant prospect for the millions of Americans who've been sweltering in recent weeks. That is, a boost in global temperatures. This would come on top of the rise in temperatures from human-caused global warming. The major broadcast news network have all but ignored the connection between human-caused climate change and the brutal heat waves that have afflicted the U.S. and Canada in recent weeks. That's according to a new analysis by Media Matters for America. All-time high temperatures have been broken, causing the deaths of dozens of people. And while heat waves are normal, research shows that our emissions of greenhouse gases are making them worse. A 2016 study, for example, found that between 1979 and 2010, the Northern Hemisphere experienced a significant increase in the intensity of summertime heat domes, which are high-pressure areas that send the mercury soaring. Similarly, a federal report released in 2017 concluded that the number of high temperature records have far exceeded the number of low records in the past 20 years. Yet the analysis by Media Matters shows that news programs of ABC, NBC, and CBS have failed to provide this crucial scientific context. The networks aired 127 segments on the recent heat waves, but only one mentioned climate change. This means that a significant portion of the American public isn't receiving the full picture. Some 26% of U.S. adults often went to these networks for news in 2017, according to the Pew Research Center. Thank you. 
listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Anyone who's been camping this summer or jogging outdoors or, for that matter, simply breathing the hazy air knows that we're in peak wildfire season. It's hard to keep track of all the fires, in fact. And despite Sunday's rainstorms, which douse some fires and cleanse the air, fire danger throughout much of the state remains extremely high. Smoke from forest and grass fires contains particulates that can irritate eyes, throat, and lungs, especially in children and the elderly. And the smoke can exacerbate symptoms among people who already suffer from conditions such as asthma, allergies, and heart conditions. To help us better understand the risks and what people can do about them, we have on the phone today Dr. Anthony Gerber. He's a pulmonologist and associate professor of medicine at National Jewish Health and the University of Colorado, Denver. Dr. Gerber, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you very much for having me. So let's just jump right in. I'm curious what precipitated the uh, National Jewish Health warnings that have come out. Well, you know, as you just mentioned, there have been a number of uh, wildfires which have been getting both local and even uh, national attention. And um, even though the wildfires can be many miles away, the wind currents can bring some of the particulate matter um, into the front range, um, which is, you know, obviously where, where many of the people in Colorado uh, live and uh, the uh, and, and the particulates that are in that wood smoke can have uh, hazardous effects on people's health. And now, how bad is it on the front range relative to say this time in previous years? It's not like we haven't had pretty horrendous fire seasons before. So, as you mentioned, the um, the rain has helped uh, over the last day or two, um, and I think that we've had a as as um, I think everyone who lives here knows we've had a unusually hot and dry um, uh, beginning to our summer. So the last two to three weeks in particular, it's been a combination of some of the wildfire smoke and then some of the other issues we have on the front range with ozone formation has sort of led to those fairly recurrent uh, uh, warnings from the health department about air quality and ozone formation. Um, so it's a, it's a variety of factors, including the wildfires. I think that um, we can remember a few years ago when, when there was maybe more acrid smoke in the area for, for just a few-day period, but this has been a fairly sustained period without precipitation where we've had, you know, more haze and more particulates than we'd like to see. Yeah, and what are the actual risks and what's happening physiologically from inhaling the wildfire-caused haze, and, and particularly for which types of people? Like we mentioned before some who already have particular conditions, and then yes. young and elderly Yes, yeah, so it's a great question. And the, these particulates are chemically complex. They're um, with wood smoke in that haze, they're about 2.5 micrometers in diameter. Um, and they're not one chemical composition, they're a variety of different chemicals. And um, uh, some of the basic biology of how they cause inflammation is not fully worked out, but suffice it to say that when those particles are inhaled, um, we, it initiates an immune response. Um, and so um, and that immune response causes inflammation, and um, in people who have pre-existing lung conditions, as you mentioned, that inflammation can trigger attacks. So people who have asthma or have smoking-related lung disease, uh, also known as COPD, they're particularly vulnerable because they have some baseline inflammation, they breathe in the particulates, they get more inflammation, and suddenly they can um, have much worse symptoms and wind up uh, feeling short of breath and cough and those sorts of symptoms. And then typically are these short or pretty long-lived symptoms? Or does it de depend on the intensity and the duration of the fire in the area? 
So there's no hard and fast rule to that. So I think that, um, you know, some people, it might be as much as if they have mild asthma on a day when there's uh, more pollution, they might feel they have to use their rescue inhaler uh, one or two times more than they usually do. But for other people, it can, it can trigger um, a more serious exacerbation, and those exacerbations can last for, you know, weeks to, um, in the case of, of, of people who have COPD, sometimes it can be over a month before someone has fully recovered from the symptoms of a more um, serious exacerbation. Um, I should say also that we know that these particulates, not only do they affect the lung um, in people who have cardiovascular disease, um, the risk of having a heart attack goes up on days when the pollution levels are very high, and obviously the long-term effects of having a heart attack can be, um, you know, the, the effects of that can persist for years. Well, so to say the least, the other warnings for folks like that, stay indoors if you can, don't take long jogs outside, or what? Yeah, so it, it, this is a, a difficult um, issue with public health um, officials because we hate to tell people <laughs> to not exercise. Right. You know, most of the year we're saying try and go for walks, try and exercise. and Yeah, just get out there. Yeah, exactly. And for many people, um, you know, it, it, you know, except on the very bad days, for many people it is, it's, it's probably okay to be outside. But, you know, certainly past is the best uh, predictor of the future in many ways. And so if you're someone who knows that those days when it's polluted, that your lung disease flares, you know, th- that's the kind of person who probably should change their exercise plans, exercise indoors. I would, I would say that, that the masks that you can buy at, at, at Walgreens are ineffective. So those little surgical masks are, they're good at, pre- at preventing droplet-borne uh, viruses, but they're really not, they don't have the granularity to filter out these particulates. So um, if you're going to wear a mask, you have to get sort of an uncomfortable industrial strength mask, so that's not really practical for most people. So as you said, you know, the best advice is really um, avoidance, stay inside, and, you know, you can also be judicious. You can look at the, you know, if it just rained, you know, that's the time to go get your exercise. If the, you know, you can look on the website, and, on a, and, and there are um, um, days which are better than others, and if you, you know, run three days a week, try and stagger it to run on the days when the air is a little bit better. Right. Boy, I'm hearing more this year than ever before from friends, and then they talk about others, that they, those who never had symptoms before are getting them now this year is that coincidental is there something different maybe about the mix of different uh chemicals in the haze maybe it's just not just wildfire or it's that but it's that much more intense yes so so it is it's when you you can see haze and you can quantify the number of particulates but it's hard to know exactly um what's in the you know, you know, not all haze is the same. And so it's possible that there are people who the particular mix this year is, um, is bothering them more. It's also possible that it's just a combination of the sustained higher temperatures and drier air than we've had that is just making people who usually um, um, don't have trouble um, have more problems. Um, it, it's hard to I, – I would be – I, I'm unaware of, of, of if there's any unique compositions in this year's um, uh, mix of wildfire smoke, but um, it could be that the, that the kind of trees or the brush or even the soil um, has, has, has different uh, things in it which are contributing to, to, to symptoms. The other thing to remember is that this year the ozone, it hasn't been in the, um, in the above the, the standards um, particularly frequently, but it's been in the, you know, in the, in the higher range of what we like to, to see, you know, 
for, for, for a number of days, and it could also be a combination of, of, a, of, of although below the standard, still slightly elevated ozone, mixing with the particulate matter, um, giving some of those people mm. symptoms. And then I'm curious, because it seems, maybe this is not the right term, but the wildfire hits all democratically. Actually, maybe those more living on the edges of wildfire-prone areas. But I'm wondering how do you'd compare exposure and the biological impacts of exposure to, say, wildfire haze to uh, vehicle exhaust. Say those largely uh, poor folks living really close to these intersecting highways in urban yeah. areas, those kind of VOCs and other hydrocarbons. So it's a great or question. Or for that matter, sorry, like living near oil and gas operations. There's certainly or lots that's come out from the public health department about that. Living near refineries. So I think that, that the first issue is that um, this is, you know, uh, you know, National Jewish Health and, and the health department and everyone else, when there's a region-wide event which occurs with a wildfire, you know, we want to get the message out really broadly and have people, um, because it's different, you know, as you said, people, there are some people, unfortunately, live near polluted areas all the time, and they... You know, it's part of their day-to-day routine, and they probably discuss with their physician um, what to do when they have worse symptoms. Um, um, an event like this, you know, there, there's more people affected, and people who ordinarily don't have air quality problems, you know, we encourage them to call their health care provider and be aware that there um, is, you know, that there are a few weeks here in the summer when the air is bad. In terms of the, the effects, um, you know, obviously, if you live near a highway and you're constantly getting exposed, those effects accrue over time, and so there's there, there's more of a risk to those to those people, um, but I would say that you know on a day-to-day basis, it's you know being stuck in traffic on I-70 for 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 two hours um, for someone who uh, doesn't live near the highway versus breathing in the air when the particulates are high from a, a fire. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're roughly similar. Um, it's hard to distinguish epidemiologically, which is, you know, if, if there are major differences. I would add that, that, that with industrial activity, there's some sensitivity that, that perhaps there are other air toxics that are being released with that activity. So we had that fire at the metal recycling plant, and obviously that's a very different kind of particle than what you would have um, um, you know, from a from a you know standard car exhaust, or what you would have from wildfire. So, when there is more industrial pollution, there's always a concern that some of the additional elements that mix to make those particulates might make the particulates uh, more toxic. And that's an area of you know very active investigation and interest. Whether you can further define the the risk based on what particular sources are contributing to the particulates. Yeah. So, as a pulmonologist who is uh, not only breathing the air but seeped in the medicine of this, are you? You seen more patients who were afflicted with asthma and such, and what are you doing? So, you know, I have, I, I would say anecdotally, and, and you know, it's always, it's, it's always a little dangerous to, to take an N of one and get their opinion right. on, on it to see more patients, but clearly my patients are coming in and saying the last couple of weeks have been more difficult, I've had more symptoms, and um, what I encourage people to do is to have a, have a, a plan in place. So hmm. if you have, you know, pre-existing asthma or smoking-related lung disease, you know, you should discuss having a plan for when your symptoms are worse, 
be it because you're exposed to particulate matter pollution or you got a cold, you should have a plan in place as to, as to how to handle that. And so if the symptoms are mild, you might be able to increase your, um, your inhalers in, in accordance with your doctor's plans. And if they're more serious, you may need to call your doctor and get advice on the phone. But um, certainly we encourage um, everyone to try, you know, with lung disease to have a, a plan to handle worsening symptoms in place. And it's something that, you know, we certainly strive to do with all of our, our, our patients here and, and, and we encourage people to uh, to discuss that with their doctor. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Susan. Thank you very much for having me. That was Anthony Gerber. He's a pulmonologist and associate professor of medicine at National Jewish Health and the University of Colorado, Denver. listening to KGNU Science Show. Since April, when the government's so-called zero-tolerance policy went into effect, more than 2,300 children, including babies, have been separated from their parents and detained in U.S. government detention centers. And more recently, some 200 of the children have been reunited with their parents, but the bulk of them remain isolated. As a result, many immigrant children suffer from physical and mental health problems, as our next guest will discuss. Dr. Colleen Kraft is a pediatrician and president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She joins us on the phone from her clinic in Mission Viejo in Orange County, California. Dr. Kraft, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day with patients to join us. Well, thank you. First, lay out the situation now for these children, including like what their day-to-day lives look like in detention and, and where? So I've had, had the opportunity to visit children in one of the shelters that has been run by the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And it was one of these tender age shelters. So the children are all under 12 years of age. When you walk into the shelter itself, it has kind of a homey appearance to it. So there are cribs and books and toys and other things that would make this a good environment, except there are no parents with these children. And so the place where you really see this so importantly impacting these children is in the toddler room. Mm. So if you think about a room full of toddlers, and they are rambunctious and running around and playing and active. These children were just sitting and playing very quietly and not interacting, Mm. very abnormal appearing, except for one little child who was just crying and was inconsolable. And the, the staff workers really try to be kind with these kids, but they're not allowed to pick them up and hold them and comfort them. Is that right? Is it a health department thing? They can't actually touch them. It's one of the policies Uh of ORR. And, you know, and and this little child was just sobbing. And you could see in the face of the staff person there that she wanted to help her out. And she was trying to distract her with toys and things. But we all felt helpless because we knew that these children needed their parents. And we couldn't get them their mothers and fathers. Boy, and so what are some other examples of what you're seeing and what the the mental and physical impact of this kind of separation and detention has had on them? Well, well, what what we're hearing now with some of the kids who are reunited with their families is that 
that the parents are saying these kids are different, and and we know that this is what happens. And so, so the the science behind coping with adversity mm-hmm. makes this an important part of healthy child development. And we can see what's happening where this has been disrupted by separating these children from their parents. Yeah, and as you say, some have been reunited, and still there's quite a significant effect and to what degree that would be long lasting what sort of precedent do you have to suggest one way or the other so we know with 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 separation that the longer a child is separated from a parent and the younger that child is the more likely they are to have long long standing brain damage from this and i'm curious how different is this kind of effect on the kids the medical the mental the physical effect different from, say, other forms of child abuse? I mean, there's such a wide range. Are kids suffering from so many physical and cognitive problems from living in poverty? Kids living on the streets, for example. So it's really important to understand the physiology of the stress response system and to understand that science before answering that. So what we know is that when we are threatened, our bodies prepare us to respond by increasing our heart rate, our blood pressure, and our stress hormones. Mm. When a young child's stress response system is activated within an environment of supportive relationships with adults, these physiologic effects are brought back to baseline. So think about the child, the 15-month-old who's having a temper tantrum. Mm. Their epinephrine and norepinephrine and cortisol are rising, but in the presence of a supportive adult, they can get through this, they can be redirected, those levels come down, and this actually builds resilience with children. What you're talking about, kids living in the street, kids who are in foster care, kids who are separated from parents because of abuse or neglect, is a stress response pattern called tolerable stress, where there's serious temporary stress responses. And these can be awful stress responses, but when these kids are then in a relationship with a supportive adult, they can still have their stress hormones brought down to baseline. Now, with the example of foster care kids, it's really difficult because many of these children have been abused or neglected for long periods of time. So they can heal, but only in the the presence of that supportive adult and with a lot of trauma-focused therapy. What we're talking about with those kids, as well as the kids being separated at the border, is something called toxic stress. Hmm. And that is prolonged activation of the stress response system in the absence of that protective relationship. So when the stress response system stays high and these kids have epinephrine and cortisol and fight-or-flight hormones, and they don't have that buffer of that parent, what happens is that the synapses become disoriented. They don't connect properly. We know that this actually disrupts the architecture of the developing brain. Hmm. And we can see evidence in older children that their hippocampus is smaller and that parts of their brain are actually smaller than in children who've not undergone separation or abuse or neglect. So very long-term neurological cognitive effects among the others, right? Absolutely. And, and, and what we know is that that brain that, in the aftermath of this type of trauma, goes on to not be able to cope with things later on in life. And so the 
incidence of depression, of post-traumatic stress disorder, but also the incidence of things like smoking and alcohol abuse and school failure, and also um, heart disease, cancer, morbid obesity. This is all related to that early development of the stress response system. And if it's healthy, we have a great trajectory. And if it's not healthy, we have a very poor trajectory. The big difference with these kids being separated from their parents by the U.S. government is that we're inflicting this trauma on these kids. And, and that really is very wrong. So right. what and, do you just have time for one more, but um, what do sure. you think should be done both by government, by citizens, for these children's health, for the family's so the health? The first thing that happens is we've got to get these kids reunited with their families. But secondly, they need to be able to be in a community-based setting where they can heal. And there is an option for having these families await their asylum hearings in communities where parents and kids can be together, where they can be available to go through some trauma-related therapy, and that that relationship can become protective and supportive again, because that's the best chance that we have for healthy brain development and healthy overall development for these children. Wow, such a critical topic. Thank you so much both for working on this and for joining us on the show. Well, thank you. That was Dr. Colleen Kraft. She's president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Thanks to Tom Mulesman for headline contributions. Our theme music was written by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ali Fakarture and from Bubakar Trawora. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.